Hey, is the moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. I mean, not honestly, there's not much that's more fun than getting to spend an hour talking to Rick Rubin. Rick's first book, new book, The Creative Act, A Way of Being, has really changed people's lives. I, Rick, man, I can't tell you how many people come up to me and, and tell me about it and ask me about it. And um, like people I know well, people I don't know well, I, I can't imagine what this, I'm really curious what it feels like to you. And I haven't really heard you talk about this, what the book being out in the world and what the gratitude feels like to you. And, and, and are you open to allowing yourself to, to receive what people are saying? I can't believe it. I think it's a, I thought of it as a strange book. So I had no idea how um, people would react to it. So the fact that, that it's uh, reaching people and they feel it, I'm just shocked and ecstatic. Well, say a little more about it because part of what you talk about in a way is you know, focusing on the doing of the thing, not so much the result of it, right? And um, yeah, but when you and yet this is the thing. Like even the Buddhists, nobody nobody can successfully completely divorce themselves from it, right? It's very hard to completely divorce well, this oneself. Is, it's a it's a weird thing because the difference I would say compared to all the music I've worked on, the music I've worked on, it. It accomplishes its mission when the artist is happy with the work. With the book, I wrote it with the idea of it inspiring people. That was so it had a, a ulterior, ulterior motive beyond being a fun book to read. So because it had a motive, it's different than the other things I've made. And the fact that it carried out its motive is unbelievable. Now, in terms of treating it as art, I wouldn't change a word in it for it to reach people. So I still treat it with the, um, you know, with total disregard for the audience in making it. It's truly what I want it to be. At the same time, it had a mission in the world and it's accomplishing the mission and it's unbelievable and surprising. Right, well, it's interesting, right? Disregard's an interesting word. I wonder if that's exactly the word that you mean or if it's more a detachment. Um, because you're you saying it, it had a tart. What's that? You choose. No, because right there is a sort of difference. It's important, like because we all think about this when we make stuff. It's like I, well, uh, dis disregard as a kind of almost aggressiveness to it, where which which because this was the mission of this, which you know on a Danzig record might well be the case, but here it's like to since you actually are setting out to move somebody in a specific way, it's almost like um, a detachment from whether you succeed at that, but a, it, it feels to me when I read it and when I hear you speak about it, that there is a caring kind of about it finding purchase in people that you did your job because this one wasn't complete until then, as you say. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it, it want, it, its purpose was it, it was so much work to get the book out and the purpose was to reach people. That said, it wasn't written with anyone else in mind. 
Yeah, I get that. I get that. It's, it's, I mean, anyone who's like dives in and really makes stuff knows there's this moment that you're go, I find, I think people often go back and forth right within even seconds, milliseconds. Because the thoughts, I mean, what are the, the meditators, all of us who meditate, but you know, when people, I do find like when people are scared of meditating, they say, well, I could never block all those voices out. I could never. And, and then if you meditate a lot, you go, of course you can't block those voices out. We're not blocking anything. <laughs> but, but the voices are there. You're just fencing, yeah, they man. They just don't matter. You're, they just you're don't just, matter. We, we don't, we don't, we don't give them any, um, we watch them pass. Yeah, we at our at our best, but you know, some moments they come in, and you want to be detached. You are, and then sometimes you do find yourself taking a little ride, don't you? And then you go, "Oh, right, okay, let it go." Mm -hmm. And isn't that part of something similar to cre when you're creating? And uh, there are moments of um, intrusion about the world. N not for me, honestly. I, I feel like I I'm. For me, when when in the in the process of making something, it's like solving a puzzle, and when the puzzle fits together, it's exciting for me, and and I get this feeling in my body. It's like, oh, that that sounds good. But I never go past that. I never go to what that means. I don't go to how someone's going to take it. It's never about that. I want it to be clear. I want it to be clear so that I understand it, so that when I read it, it's like that's what it is. That's how it works. I agree with you. That is definitely when the thing is flowing the best. That's for sure how it is. And it's only in those moments that an, art, that an artist or creative person actually feels like they've done their thing. Uh, if I, and if yeah, I do I, agree I, with I, this. Also, I'll say, I'll say that I wouldn't have any idea that the book would connect. That's the other part of it. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like, I'm known as a music producer. It's a philosophy book. It's not about music. It's a different kind of book than a lot of other books. And to me, it's an odd book. It's the book that I want. But because I don't have a reference for it, it feels like a, a outlier kind of book. I understand that. I wonder if the time you spent on podcasts, your first one that you did, podcasts like mine, all the different things you'd done, talking about this stuff and getting some feedback, and then also working on this book for a long time, Rick, you ideated a long time, that if, if you found a language that at least for you was gonna be effective through having some of those conversations. Yeah, I don't know. Cause the, book, the book started about eight years ago. Yeah. And, um... I only did one podcast for a long time. I did uh, Tim Ferriss's podcast maybe six years ago was the first one I did. And then I didn't do any again, probably till yours, right. something like that. And then, yeah, in ours in, in which we did, we talked about this stuff and I could feel how close you were coming to really getting to be able to, to do it. I also wonder, I've been thinking a lot about your early records and wondering how much that reified these ideas to you, even as they were first kind of a warning for you, if it also at the same time was locking it in, because like, who could have ever thought that what would happen to LL and you would happen same. to LL and you? It's, ex it's exactly the same. 
It's exactly the same because back then there couldn't be any expectation for anything because this kind of music was not even thought of as music, much less commercial. Uh, yeah, and then, and you've talked about this before, but I also have to think that there was something in Paul's boutique and watching that take flight in the way it did with them following that thing that, that also spoke to you in a different, in a way that, that deepened this. I loved it. Yeah, I loved it when I heard Paul's Boutique. Right. And, the, and, and, and Public Enemy as well. When I heard Public Enemy, it was just such a new sound. It was so different and really exciting. Had, had you had the opportunity to hear them before? Was that Bomb Squad stuff, like when they were working with Hank? Or, yeah. And, and, you, when, and it was different than the way you were making those records then. Yes, Sonic and when I, when I first heard Chuck, all yeah. he had was one song, which was his theme song for his radio show, which he made himself. And I just wanted to sign the rapper, Chuck D. Right. And then he came to me after a long, a lot of badgering for a long time with, you know, Flavor and the S1Ws and the Bomb Squad. And he's like, it's called Public Enemy. This is the whole group. This is how we're going to do it. And it's like, great, let's go. Okay, everything we've been talking about makes me think of something, and I wrote this down. But it, even hearing you talk about the what you how you wrote the book and and the way you only focus on the puzzle, and you do speak to this directly in the book in a few different stories about artists that you worked with. But can you talk about your own practice? Because like meditation's a practice, yoga's a practice. All these things are. Uh, they're called a practice for a reason, which is they take time and focus. But expectation is this great killer, I think, in everything. Like the first time one does something, you can take a flyer, but it's really hard for most individuals, most creative people to keep expectation out of their heads. I understand that you do it, but can you talk a bit about the practice of doing it and about the danger of expectation? I, I never have any barometer for any of the things that I'm making. I don't, I don't really, I don't listen to the radio. I don't know what's on the top of the chart. I, I'm oblivious to what else is going on. So I try to make things without any understanding of the market. It's not like I can let the market dictate my opinion because I have no idea what's going on. And I like it that way. I like being outside of it. I don't want to know what's going on today. I want to know what's going on that's great of all time. You know, I want to watch a great old movie. I don't want to go to the movie theater because there's a new movie out. I want to see the best movie I could possibly see. If it, if it happens to be a new movie, great. But I'm just as happy if it was made in the 1940s. I don't care. I, I'm just looking for the thing. We only have so much time to digest stuff. And I want to digest the best stuff that I can digest. And whether it's new or old doesn't matter to me at all. But yes, you're also though, you're, so you're really advanced, but you're also a human being. And I guess like expectation of not the marketplace or guessing, but that people are waiting for you, are, 
are wanting you to be great or are engaging with it or, or they loved the first thing and they can't wait for the second thing. And what, and I, I understand the way you can let that pressure off for an artist by saying to them, hey, you don't have to do this, but how do you turn it off for yourself? How do you make yourself truly detached from any of the ramifications? What's the practice of that look like I for you? I, I, I'm guessing it's just from doing it for as long as I've been doing it and putting out so many things year after year after year. I remember the first time I put out something that wasn't successful, it was surprising. It wasn't the end of the world, but it was weird because I had done, I don't know, five successful albums in a row. So I thought, oh, that's just how they are. And then I had one that wasn't. I don't remember what it was, but I remember it was like, oh, wow, they didn't like that one. That's interesting. Do you know what I mean? It was just like, I, I don't... I don't know. I don't know. I remember when Pete, when Public Enemy first came out, it was the least successful Def Jam record to date, and they turned into Public Enemy. So I always feel like, um, and I like making things that are on the edge of whatever the thing is. So I'm making something where I feel like if I write in the book, if everyone likes it, you haven't gone hard enough. You know, it's like, I, I'm always attempting to push the boundary without really knowing what the boundaries are because I'm not in the marketplace, so I don't really know. But I'm doing it in my, in my perception of it. Yeah, that thing about um, not about wanting to see the best of whatever it is, wanting to interact with the the the, the truly great thing. I think we all like at times, like we know that, right? We all know that the best art often doesn't rise to the fore in its time. We know that we go to museums, we listen to music, we interact with film, and these things that resonate 50, 60, 100 years later, very, you know, occasionally they're popular in their time, but very often they're not. Or they had some renown in their time, but they weren't considered the things that mattered. But in our time, we kind of carry these two thoughts, right? Um, we know that, and yet we chase all the time. And uh, how do you talk to artists about not chasing it and about trusting it? Because look, one thing is true is because you had those hit records when you were young, a lot of the generalized worries that people have were off the table for you. Um, most people don't have that. I know you've considered that as a factor. So how do you talk about this to people for whom there isn't this... Um, this comfortable landing in place, you know? Well, because again, from the beginning, I didn't have that comfortable landing. Yes, they happened to be successful, but I wasn't expecting, I certainly wasn't expecting that. You know, I never expected any of the success to happen that happened. I, how, could I, how could I? Do you know what I'm saying? There was no point of reference. Or if I work with a group who sounds a particular way, and then I work with them and it sounds completely different, I go. I know going in, probably half their audience is gonna hate it, and that's okay, because I'm hoping that the half that likes it really likes it, and it gives them a lease on life going forward where they're not just doing the same thing over and over again where it gets tired and worn out, and then two years from, from now they have no career at all. This is a way where they're true to themselves, they follow what's going on inside them. They don't feel an obligation to stick to the past. And they can move forward with their careers in, a, in an honest, pure, 
true way, which was, by the way, the thing that got them there in the first place. Well, yeah. I mean, I played Takes a Nation of Millions for some people recently, some young people in their 20s. And they really knew about Public Enemy as this historical thing that mattered, but they didn't know the record. And I had remembered, of course, that it was... Um, I had this feeling and it turned out to be right. But I put it on and you know, a lot of those records, because they were so popular and because they've been so played out in so many places, there's this, it's not that they sound dated, but they are of their time. And it takes a nation of millions, ain't of its time only. It's amazing now. It's so yeah. vital because the stakes were different somehow. And it also, didn't sound like the time it was made. It was out of time then. Yes. You know, it was never, it was never, this was the sound. It was always alternative programming. And that's basically what I'm interested in, in general is alternative programming. If everything sounds like this, what's the one that we can make that doesn't sound like anybody else? And that's interesting and worth listening to. But even go farther, right? Because even that, I think you go, I. My sense is actually, yeah, that's shorthand, and I get it. But it, but it's that's even reductive, not reducer, as you used to call yourself. But that's even re, that's even reductive to. Oh, I'm gonna look. Uh, if everyone's doing this, I'm gonna do that, isn't it? I, I wonder if it's also really just once you identify, I'm gonna work with this person. What you're really doing is just diving as deep into what they do and making yes. it as pure what they do. And if that yes. happens to if that happens to fit the times, fine. If it happens not to, also fine, right? Yes, yes. I will say, I'll say that at the same time, all things being equal, if we could make something that's different than what other people are making and great, I would much prefer to make the different and great than the same and great any time possible. And is that a strategy that has to do with, though, a commercial aspect? Or is that a strategy that has to keep, do with keeping it exciting and fresh for you in the work? For me. I, I'm only ever making them for me. It's like it's interesting to me when I haven't heard it like that before. When it's it, That's interesting. So I want to hear where it, it, I never heard it like that. That's interesting. Yeah. So I understand that and, and agree. I was thinking about that great moment in Steve Martin's book when he talks about be undeniably great don't worry about agents and it's easy for all of us to say who've found a way to have the whole thing right to 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 get people to engage with the work to have made you know been successful enough to keep a roof on our heads and all all of it but but why do you think the default question from so many aspirants and i'm not not saying that these people are not talented it, it's because i think it's kind of across the board but what do you think it is that makes it more comfortable to ask, how do I get an agent instead of asking, how do I find a way to do truly great work? Yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like um, people give away their power. They're, they're waiting for permission from someone else to sanction their work. And coming from a punk rock background, we didn't do that. You know, everything was do it yourself. We never asked for permission. We never were looking for any gatekeeper's acceptance because the music we were making was in reaction to what they were doing, always. 
So how did you process when then when you were young in that moment when, you know, before all of this became completely, um, before you really learned how to fully kind of check where you were at in all of it, like when suddenly you were thrust into the gatekeeping role, when you were suddenly the father figure, even young, to bands that you'd work, you know, the Beastie Boys, really the Beastie Boys, but all of it, like how did you make the shift away? I guess that's why Paul's Boutique's so interesting to me, right? Because you had to make this shift uh, around that time to go like, well, wait, actually I, because it, yeah, I wonder, how did you process that and how's that lesson stayed with you? I just was always staying true to whatever the thing that was interesting to me. You know, at the time that they were making Paul's Boutique, I was probably making a Danzig album or something yeah. like that. So it just felt right. You know, it felt like we were both moving forwards in different directions is what it felt like. But I guess when you started running, when you were like really running record companies and you were in a role that was not purely creative, how did you, how did you balance the, this thing of people like um, trying to offload that responsibility onto you basically? Yeah, I, I take the position that the only important decisions to make are the creative ones. And until that decision is made and what's best for the art, none of the other decisions count. We don't even start thinking about the other decisions till after. Because then once you have the work and the work is the work, then you can think about, okay, how can we market this? Who do we market this to? How do we promote this? But in the making, if you're thinking ahead to anything about um, anything other than making the best thing you can make, it undermines the whole, um, you can feel it. You can feel when things are made like through pandering to an audience. It's why, it's why most big movies now are not good. They're not made by a person with a vision. They're made by a committee and test screenings over and over again and lowest common denominator. And, and you know, they're just not good. Yeah. I mean, I think it's always been the case that there's a group of people who believe who, who believe that by underestimating an audience and trying to understand what an audience liked before, that they can guess what an audience is going to like. And it, it, those are the most depressing interactions one has as a creative person, I think, right? Do you, yeah, I'll say a very interesting thing because this counter the audience don't matter. Never underestimate the audience. Yes, right. That's the other side of it. You always assume the audience is going to get everything. They're going to not only are they going to get everything you get, they're going to get more than you get. The yeah. audience is brilliant. So don't worry about them. Worry about your part, make your art, and then let them do what they do. If they don't like it, it's not their fault they don't like it. They don't get it. They're never wrong. They're is, never wrong. That's Billy you Wilder. That's like Billy Wilder 101, and it's so true. Yeah, you get to make the thing you love, and either they like it or they don't. And you know what? Nobody's wrong in that picture. You made the thing that you loved. That was true. They didn't like it. That was true. Great. Go make another one if you can. Yeah, when people, I will say, like, you know, um, I was lucky to learn this lesson. Dave and I were on the first Unrounders because, you know, when it's time and the audience wasn't, it was, it was an insular thing and, and there were people who, who, who completely missed it. But we felt like, well, no, we love this language so much and we're so interested in this. There are going to be these people who care. And that turns out to have been 
all the years later, all that mattered. And people will sometimes say, uh, I mean, it's, you know, you and I have talked about this kind of thing a lot, but people will sometimes say, you guys, all these references in your show, um, what if people don't get it? And I swear my thing is, the people who are supposed to get it, they'll get it and they'll be here with us. And they're the people who've been hanging out with us for 30 years, they'll get it or they won't. Yeah, and, and it's all good either way. If they don't get it, it's okay. Yeah, but um, I agree, as long as you get off on it. And, but then you have to, um, there are practical considerations. Quentin always talks well, th about this. Live below, about, your, live below your means so you can then do that. Think about when you were a child and you saw adult content of any kind, any, any uh, movie not made for kids, anything. You probably understood a third of it. You probably loved a bunch of those movies. Why is that different than now? Why can't an adult love a movie that they understand 30% of? Who said understanding it is what it's about? I wonder, I know you have thoughts about this, but I wonder if some of the reason people get so hung up on these aspects when they're trying to create stuff, because as you know, I was blocked for a long time when I was a kid. It was really hard for me to do this stuff. And I wonder how much of it has to do with the way the educational system is set up, the kinds of approvals that you're made to think you need and want when you're young. And if that sets up the wrong dichotomy, does that track for you at all? I, I feel like um, I was lucky in that my parents were uh, wildly enthusiastic for anything I did in an unrealistic way. Yeah. So I had nothing but validation, which gave me the freedom to feel like, well, I could do whatever I want because they tell me everything I do is great. So I could do anything I want. You didn't have that kind of need. You, that, that neediness wasn't hardwired in you. And do you think you brought some of that to the way in which you interact with the art? Once you choose, I'm gonna work with this artist and love them, do you bring some of that to bear in that conversation? Absolutely, I, gi I give them the confidence that sometimes they don't have. How do you do that while, and you talk about this in the book, the um, uh, but I want you to talk about it now a little bit. How do you do that while keeping rigorous about making sure you help them get to their very best work and do you have a critical eye have their own critical eye toward their work because the work is not us so we immediately establish the fact there's the artist there's me and then in addition to the two of us there's this thing outside of us that usually starts with them or comes from them that's the work so together we talk about this thing outside of us it's never your song is no good. It's, let's look at this song. How could this song be better? What do you think's good about it? What do you think's not good about it? I hear this transition doesn't really work for me. Do you have any ideas to make it better? It's, it's, it's because it's so, um, it's so casual and so impersonal the way we talk about it. It's, we're talking about an object outside of ourselves that, Together as a team, we're going to do everything we can to make it as good as it could be. So to not be able to say what we think of the object, if our job together is to make it the best it could be, is crazy. There's no emotion and there's no feelings involved. There's nothing personal involved. I wonder, but on the flip, when I've watched, 
you know, I watch you standing there with McCartney or with Jay-Z, it does seem from the outside, like in a moment when Jay-Z finds a flow that is one of those transcendent moments, you then do take the ride where it all it comes together in um, this incredible enthusiasm that is the way it gets expressed is for the work, but also it's like a big loving hug on the on the artist too, right? Yeah, but it's because we're we're both experiencing something incredible. Like we're experiencing because for the artist it's magic too. Because maybe a half hour earlier they were doing their best and it wasn't like that. Do you know what I'm saying? I really so do. Like, I really do. Yeah. yeah. So when it when it happens, it's like, wow, how cool is that? It's it's and it's not they did it. It's not I did it. Something happened. Nobody knows what happened. It just got good, and it's really exciting. And that that's the thing that keeps us coming back are those moments of like, whoa, how did that happen? How cool is that? Or or somebody drops something. It's like, whoa, that was kind of cool when you dropped that. Maybe that actually happens. I agree. Yeah, those are these, when you see that kind of thing near you, it's, it's amazing and inspiring and it really keeps you going. You know, I've, I, you rarely have talked about the moments when, when you felt it came short or you felt that your, your, your part in it did. But I'm, I'm really, we've never talked about this, but like um, ACDC really matters to me like in an enormous way. Like they really, yeah. really matter to me. I, for me, they're the Rolling Stones. Like I'm, ACDC is so important to me, right? And I, have a, I wonder how you would approach the situation in the sort of more evolved place. And I know why it was difficult because it's actually when you talk about it, what sounds to me like is, is for a minute, you got caught up in all the stuff you try not to get caught. You, kept, you became aware that you were with ACDC and they were, they were this monolithic thing. I don't, I don't think, I think what happened was they were used to a particular way of working that was, they wanted a producer who was like the headmaster at the school. The, the, they wanted Mutlang, basically. They wanted someone to tell them what to do. Tell them when it's good, tell them when it's bad. Tell them, and that's not how I work. It's a much more of a collaborative thing. So I remember one time they played a take and I said, have that feeling there. And they're like, what, who, who cares how we thought it feel? What do you think? Was it good or not? And it's like, it's just like a weird disconnect because it's never been like that for me. It's always, I'll say it's good if it feels good to me, but if they're playing and if I see they're playing their hearts out, I could say at the end of a take, where, you know, where was that for you? That, that did not, they didn't understand that way of working. Just that wasn't the way they liked to work or the way they were used to working. So it was a, it was like a cultural divide where they were looking for a boss. And I'm not really a boss in that way. Yeah. Well, that's so interesting because yet when the way that people talk about you working with certain artists, Metallica, certain other artists does feature you saying, I don't think it's good enough yet. I don't think the songs are good oh, enough yet. No, no, no. So I, talk about yes, so but we get, but we get there. We get there. It's like if anyone, there may be times where I think it's good enough, and, they, and the band doesn't think it's good enough. We keep going. It's uh, everyone has to get. We have to all get there together at some point. I can remember a very specific example with ACDC. I could tell you that gives you a, an idea of what it was like. We were working on a song and there was a transition from uh, 
chorus into a bridge. They play the song one time. They get to that part, sort of a train wreck. They can't, they don't know, they haven't yet learned how to play that transition. So it doesn't really, it doesn't work. So I, so we finished the take and I say, okay, the uh, transition from the chorus to the bridge doesn't work. Can we try, is there anything we can do? Uh, and, and Malcolm's like, yeah, yeah, I have an idea. Let's do it like this. And then he says how to do it. And they say, okay, let's play chorus into the bridge, just chorus into the bridge. They play the chorus into the bridge. And again, maybe Malcolm does what he says, but the other guys don't do it. And it's another train wreck. And I say, okay, let's try it again. And they try it again. And they tried it like four times. And in none of those four times did they ever actually do it. Do you know what I'm saying? Of like, course, of course. Not that they didn't. It's like all all of the members didn't do the idea. Yeah, it didn't it just land. Was, it, it wasn't. It, it didn't cohere. In the, it wasn't like that magic. The pocket. Well, like ACDC no. is all about Phil Rudd in that pocket or whichever. And if the pocket, if yeah. it's not there, it's not work. It's not there. It, it wasn't. But it wasn't not there because the part was a bad part. They just hadn't yet played it correctly all together. Right. So I said, play it again. And finally, I think it was the fourth time I said, play it again. And Malcolm screamed, if you don't like the part, just say so, and took off his guitar and threw it on the ground and left for the day. Now, I didn't, I never got to hear the part. Do you know what I'm saying? I, really I never do. got to I hear really, the part. I really know what you're saying. Yes. Do you think that today you would find there's a different way to have managed that? Like, what did you do? I'm so interested in this. So he throws the guitar off. You just went home. Did you just like go home? Did you, did that stay with you overnight or could you just like slough it off and not think about it again? Till the next day. It was just, I, I just remember thinking, this is so weird. We never got to hear it. Like, I didn't, I didn't know what to do with it. Right. I didn't know what to do with it. Gosh, that, yeah, it's hard to picture you at, so at a loss. And it's kind of weirdly, like, so this is the thing to everybody, right? Here's a moment. It's really instructive. And like, so here's a moment where clearly Rick is somebody who knows how to make a record. <laughs> Clearly, ACDC are people who've made more great records than almost any band that ever lived. And yet, for some reason, because of either of a bunch of the stuff, you either expectation, habit, um, focusing on the wrong things, personalizing yeah. things that shouldn't have been personal, being critical of the wrong aspect of the self, meaning obviously that's an anger at the at his brother at the drug whatever that anger is well it was a it was a story clearly the story that Malcolm had in his head was i didn't like the part and i was getting him to play it over and over again to somehow prove the point that i didn't like it that's not what was going on i never got to hear the idea i couldn't i couldn't say whether i liked it or not cuz i still didn't know what it was it never happened do you remember what happened the next, did you stop the next day or did you guys, is that, I know you moved studios. No, no, no. Then we came back the next day and I don't know, I can't remember. It kind of happened. I think we just went back to work like nothing happened. I imagine. Did, did you end up kind of, like, so in a hard creative situation like that, where it's like, um, this is, I guess what I'm wondering now, 25 years later, do you think there's a conversation you would try to have or would you try to sh switch it up somehow? Or you think you would just, like play out the string and know, well, this one might not really work. Like, how would you, how would you try to approach it now? Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I don't know because the reaction was so foreign and surprising at the time that it happened. It's not like I could have done anything different leading up to it because I didn't know what was going course, on. Like there was a story going on in his head that I wasn't aware of.
So I, I don't know what I would have said different or done different because I didn't realize the story was happening. I thought he was figuring out how to get the other guys to play the part that he, the way they, the way that he explained it so we could actually hear whether it was going to work or not. Yeah. Have you got, I've heard you say like, um, not exactly disavow that record, but just be like, I, I wish I could have solved it differently. Have you, it's really not the worst ACDC record, right? No, 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 it's not at all. a really good not, record. Not at all. Yeah, yeah absolutely. You, I, I, it was, I, it was a hard experience, but I got to be in a room and watch ACDC play every day. It was like, un, I couldn't believe it. I remember inviting friends to come to the studio just to hide in the room to see them play because it was ACDC right there playing. You never heard anything that good. It's really true, by the way. People, do, I, I mean, they're so popular and all the rest of it, but like, I do think they're still an underrated artist somehow by the cognizant. Like, yeah. I don't think people really understand what that is. Yeah. You know, probably the best, best rock band of all time. That's what I think. Yeah. Basically, like the best probably rock the band best of rock all band. time. Every right. It's crazy. I just always go through these periods of time where I just will listen to that every one in order of their albums for a couple of weeks and you just go, oh, yeah, it's as good as I remember. <laughs> it's every bit as good. Yeah. It's insanity. And I will say one good thing that did come from that album was that I suggested to Malcolm that that we get Phil back in the band and he and he came back. And that so if the if the only thing that happened was Phil Rudd was back in ACDC, it worked out okay. I'm so just, I'm so glad that Phil came up here because I actually think Phil Rudd's drumming is really goes so hand in hand with your book. Be, because whenever people make these lists of the greatest drummers, and I'm, you've never met a bigger Neil Peart fan than me, but when literally, you know, but I always throw him in the conversation. I'm always like, yeah, of course, Bonham and Neil Peart, but. Don't sleep on Phil Rudd. And people go, well, anyone can do that. That's not special. And I go, right, Rick's shaking his head like, no, no, they can't. No, nobody could do that. Because Nobody it, could do that. Yeah, nobody. Neil Peart can't do that. You, so you agree that Phil's in that conversation, right? Absolutely. One more. Absolutely. So, but can you talk about, so this is important, man, because it's like, um, there's a simplicity, right, to the fact and a non-caring about the convention of what everybody else thinks makes you one of the greatest drums like that. I know Phil Rudd. Uh, okay, is yeah. Clint Eastwood right. not as good of an actor because he says less lines in the movie? Right, but so, right, no, of course, like Clint's given some of the most effective performances you've ever seen. But I think the idea, this is what I'm, so the idea that, that this guy Phil Rudd is ACDC's drummer has about three fills he's ever played. They're the same fills. And the drum beats are pretty much the drum beats that he plays. But, and it's not the kind of thing that's like flashy or what the audience thinks it wants. If you ask people, what do you want in your great drummer? They're going to describe Neil Peart or John Bonham. What they actually need is like what Phil Rudd does. Phil Rudd or Charlie Watts. Yeah. I mean, you yeah. also need Neil Peart. I do, but like that, that's, yeah. it's an, it, it's an, it's, um, about this being comfortable with the simplicity of just doing the thing that you do. And it's the feel. That's the key. The key, it's not about the notes. Yep. It's about the feel. If you could play, if B.B. King could play one note 
and have it mean more than 50 notes of Eddie Van Halen, which is who's better. Do you know what I'm saying? If you could do it in one note, Phil Rudd does it in one note or with one beat. It's just the the energy that's in it, the feel, the drive, the groove is unmistakable. It's, I mean, the combination of Phil Rudd and Malcolm Young together, that rhythm, it's funny to call the rhythm, the guitar player, the rhythm section, but in that band, that's the rhythm section. It's Malcolm Young and Phil. Those guys together, there is nothing as groovy as that. I so agree with you. It's so good to hear it's you say that. It's perfect rock and roll. It's so perfect good to hear you say that. As good as it gets. As good as it gets. <laughs> it really is. And it's it's elemental. I guess what I'm getting at is it's elemental. It's not, there's not very much ornament. No, there's none. It's elemental. And yeah. a lot of what you're talking about in the book is elemental, is returning to the comfort of finding the elemental roots of what you want to do as a creator and getting rid of, you can add the filigree at the end, but don't worry about that in, in the beginning so much. Yeah. There's actually another part, this interesting uh, Malcolm, a Malcolm Young story. Around the time that I was producing ACDC, I did a couple of sessions with Joe Cocker and I had Malcolm Young play rhythm guitar on a Joe Cocker session. And, and I remember at one point Malcolm was playing a, you know, like Malcolm plays a great, simple, great rhythm part. And he came into the studio and, and, and had me solo his guitar. He's like, what do you think of the part? And I said, sounds great. And he listens. He said, I think it's good for anybody else, but not for me. I feel like it needs, there needs to be another, there's more to it. And, and he ended up finding like some little accent yeah. that got added to it. Some little insignificant thing that changed the whole thing to be like a signature guitar part. And he knew it. So because the guitar player is doing that, Phil, his job is to stay out of the way so that you could hear whatever small, nuanced uh, push or pull that Malcolm brings and not step on it with the drums. That's the secret of ACDC. Yeah, and it's, and it's, it's worth thinking about in your own, whatever the thing you're doing, understanding what are the elemental parts and how those parts can work best together. Uh, yeah, and that the elemental parts are not always used the same way. Like in, in some groups, the, the bass player drives the train. In some groups, the drummer drives the train. In some groups, the, the, in some groups all they do is follow the vocalist. See how your group works. I remember going to see Oasis play and the way Oasis works is Noel, the guitar player, is the rhythmic leader of the band, and the band follows him. And then their drummer left the band, and then they had a new drummer who was Ringo's son, who's an incredible drummer. And I went to see them play at Hollywood Bowl. And apparently, Ringo's son was used to being the drummer who leads the charge. So you have two different instruments leading the charge together and never really locking up. Now, they, they didn't even notice it because they were all playing the parts. Like they were just playing their parts, 
But I'm sitting in the audience, I'm feeling like it's not coming together. It's not, they're not grooving the way this band grooves. They're not doing the Oasis playbook. But the reason they're not is they don't even know what it is. Most people don't know what it is. It's just the way those players play together. That's what makes the sound. Paul McCartney tells the story of the first time they played with Ringo. They were like, wow, that was different than we've ever sounded. I hope he could stay in the group. Well, even that thing that you and McCartney taught, I forget what song it was right now, but um, where McCartney's describing to you that thing John came up with in the studio where he played the, you know, plays the rhythm where he's just going chunk, 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 chunk. And McCartney is like, and you go, did he do that before on live? Or then, and Paul's like, nope, just in the studio. He just found this thing and it made the whole, Paul's explaining to you like that thing that he heard and it just somehow made the entire thing work. Oh man, Rick, what you just said is so fascinating because like um, I've, I've thought a lot about why Ari, like the difference in when Bill Berry was in the band and like, cause Mike Mills, however Mike Mills understood to play with Bill Berry, cause Mike was so the musical center in certain ways and uh, many times, when it wasn't Bill, it, it forced Mike to do something else and that forced a different kind of chain reaction, which has really changed the essential nature of, you couldn't, Joey Warnocker's great drum. I mean, the drummers who played with him are amazing but they weren't Bill Berry, which means Mike had to be slightly different, right? And it's all- Yeah, it's not, the players are not plug and play in these bands. And and just because you, you can get a better drummer and that doesn't make the group better. It really is the right drummer for the right group or the right guitar player or the right bass player. And so how much of that is about, so if you're working on a creative thing, cause this, I guess where my, when I ask you those questions about like, um how you balance those equities and your answer. And I know it's true. I've known you long enough when you're like, well, I never did. But I wonder, most people were not raised the way you were and don't have your constitution and didn't have your young success. And so most people, there is more of a push and pull. And I wonder, you've encountered those people, you've worked with them, you've helped them, some you've trained. Have you thought about like the mantras people can, what people can do I mean, you wrote the book, so I want, uh, to, um, to adapt that more e- e- easily, like what they can do to put themselves in a place to be still enough to just be noticing as opposed to worrying. Yeah, um, p- paying attention to what's going on inside yourself, turning off any voices from the outside any way you need to. You have to find your own way of doing this, whether it's moving to a place where you don't know anybody, or going on a trip by yourself with a backpack, or whatever it is, to find a a place where you can hear your own thoughts and have your own reactions and own them and really feel them. And and it's as easy, I've said it before, but it's as easy as knowing what you like, the way picking food that tastes good to you. It's as easy as that. If you taste if you taste a dish and it tastes really good, no one could say to you, "No, that doesn't taste good." It's like, "No, I'm tasting it. It tastes great." That it's it's as simple as that. Well, the idea of getting lost and going and getting lost in the wilderness, having your lost time in the wilderness intentionally, is really. I agree with you. It's crucial. It's crucial to. Well, I'll tell you, my version of that growing up was just being in my room alone because I was in my room alone a lot, a lot, a lot. And I got to be with my own thoughts a lot. 
and I got to listen to music a lot and I got to read a lot and think about it. Yeah, me too. I mean, you so know, does it, you it and I were growing be... up, we were 15 minutes apart. We didn't know each other, though we had people in common. We didn't know each other. We were 15 minutes apart and I was coming home and closing my door and putting on ACDC a lot, truly, and reading those books like um, and trying to lose the day and figure shit out. Even if, even if for me, all that was was trying to like recover from the day. <laughs> But the result of it was this time alone to figure my brain out and my pri the prism through which I looked at, at life, which is why when I was young, I was able to see certain things, not, you know, and it was different because yeah. I I'd had some practice at it. I, how much, I wrote this down to ask you too, exactly this. How much of your day is spent in some version of quiet contemplation now? A lot. What does it define a lot? hours and hours. Now, when I say quiet contemplation, that could also, that's not just practice. That could be reading. That could be researching. I, I probably don't talk that much in the course of a day unless I'm, unless I have a session. I don't speak very much in the day. I almost never speak on the phone. Almost never. I'm not around people that much other than my family. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty uh, in my head a lot. And how do you, uh, kind of like define for yourself time well spent? Having fun, time with the family, time with friends or accomplishing or learning something. Those would be the different categories. Accomplishing or learning something. So yes, I agree with all those. I, I decided a long time ago I would define, like for me, a successful day was like meditation, some kind of writing, time with my family and some kind of exercise. And if I did all those things in a day, that was okay, I had a good day because I was engaged in the practice. And always the curiosity, like you, because I stoked the curiosity so young, I'm always, the curious time is that's the main, that's just all day, the living in a curious head. But then if I just put those kind of markers, I'm okay, you know? So you're, con and are you, you're conscious of, 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 that, of that alone time or it's already so grooved that you don't have to be conscious of it? Well, I, I'm so used to exercising every morning that I didn't even include that in the list because that's a default. That's kind of a first thing in the morning thing. So I don't think of it. And I'll say if when I miss a day, I'm very aware of it, and it's probably not as good of a day. I agree with that. And meditation too? Depends, because I go through phases with different, like now I'm doing more Qigong. So before I would do sitting meditation, now I'm doing a more of a Qigong practice. I do more um, metta. Often when I'm exercising, I'll be, you know, do long walks doing um, met metta practice. So I do different types of practices all the time. And how much do you let the... So many of us, I've been working really hard the last two years on this, and it's finally, actually, I'm in a good place with it, but, but, oh my God, like, so for me, the four years of, for, for me, and you know, the four years of Trump, and this is not a statement on Trump, I'm not making a fuck, I don't care, it doesn't matter if you listen to the podcast, you know where I am on this, but for me, those four years of Trump, I let intrude so much. I had anxiety attacks, like for the first, I, I let it, I let it live inside of me. And when finally that ended, and even though I could happen, I, I very consciously, never talked about, I very consciously went like, that can't happen again. I can't let that happen again. So how, 
how do you not let the world intrude? Uh, events of the world, you know. Um, yeah. Not that you should be clueless, but I'm saying, how do you not let it affect your internal life, your interiority? Yeah, I'd, I'd rather be more clueless. I'm, I'm not now, but if, I, if there was a switch I could hit <laughs> to just not know anything that's going on, I'd prefer that. Why are you not as clueless as, you, as you'd like to be? Because I'm, I'm online. You know, if you live online, you get to see all this nonsense. And you like listening to people you like, but is that the, like, like, like me, I love listening to Tyler. And if I listen to Tyler Cowan, I'm going to hear a bunch of stuff about the world because I want to hear him because I'm so interested in the way his brain works and the curiosity and any subject he's interested in. I want to hear the way he thinks about it. Right. Mm -hmm. And is, is that why, why did you start? I love, you know, obviously I love your podcast and uh, listen to every episode even when you have people on that I'm just like, all right, that I think that person's a fucking wackadoodle. Um, I still, I still <laughs> Those listen. Those are the best ones. I still listen. All but one of them. I still, one of them I had to shut off. <laughs> I won't say which one, but one of them I had to snap off. And you'd be surprised at which one. But, um, but I still want to do it because you're so curious and you engage these people and you really do bring them out. What made you want to do that? You know, the music one was really fun when you were... For me, as someone who knows you and become a friend and like who's, I could tell when the music ones were really firing you up and when it was, you'd sort of had a lot of settled, you know, you knew too much. Whereas I love the podcast now because you're learning something in every single episode that you didn't know before. You are engaged yeah. outside of your ken a lot. Uh, and you're nodding, so you, I know you agree. Um, is that why you did it? Is that why you wanted to do this particular podcast? Yeah, I, I, the, the other one started because Malcolm wanted to start a music podcast and invited me to, to join him. And it was really fun. I thought it was going to be a different thing from the beginning because I listened to his podcast, Revisionist History. So I thought it was going to be more story based, like a produced story, more like documentaries about music turned into an interview show. But through that, I got comfortable interviewing people, which was not something I ever did before. And then I came to realize after five years, like, I feel like if I was going to start now, I wouldn't be interviewing music people because I do that all day. I talk to music people. I want to talk to people I'm interested in from all walks of life. It doesn't rule out music people, but it's probably, you know, seven or eight to one non-music and I like it. And I like learning about different things. Oh, no, the music episodes are like the John Mayer episodes. Awesome. Because you're engaged in a way with him talking about something where he really is the domain expert guitar. And you're an expert, but John's a domain expert. And in having that conversation, you're still able to stretch yourself. I felt as a listener it, because you picked it. You don't have it's not music every week. So you can decide. Yeah. But so it's a form of growth for you. Right, the podcast. Absolutely. No, it's so interesting. How did you how did you start yours? Yeah, the you same the con wanting to have the conversations. What a great thing to be able to have those conversations with people. Well, also I think I was trying I was in a low it's why I started the vines too, and um, um I didn't realize then, but I think I was trying to remind myself of some core principles about what it meant to do this stuff, even in times when the audience didn't respond, and how to deal with the fear. And I saw so it ask. Adam Duritz, what it felt like to be 29 and ignore, you know, to be ignored when you know you're riding around here. And it, 
somehow lit me up to be able to want to keep going, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. the growth, you're just trying to, and we're just trying to, and we're just trying to grow. I think that, you know, it's funny to hear, nice that you don't talk on the phone a lot because sometimes we talk on the phone occasionally and I always feel like it's people trying to continue to like learn something about how to mine something out of all, all this and keep progress, like keep having progress, right? Absolutely. And so it's just so interesting to learn about different people, about different ways of thinking or different creative people addressing their craft, something I know nothing about from different angles. It's always interesting, always informative, and I'm always surprised. The other thing is, man, you are just so good at, you know, when um, I had Paul Heyman on the pod and, and you reached out to me about it and it was like, I don't know why or how you do this, but it is, I know you do it for so many people. Like I needed that phone call. I needed that conversation right at that moment. Your phone call and the way you understood and heard me was like so meaningful. And I think that's just this incredible gift that you have. I don't know that that's really transferable, but the way that you're, you interact with what's out there and when you reach out, I think you just have this, I don't know that that's teachable, but it's really wonderful. And um, it's great that you do that for people all the time. So was it the Paul Heyman episode that you turned off? Wackadoodle episode. No, I love Paul Heyman, obviously. <laughs> okay. No, it was the seed oil guy. The which one? A guy talking about like seed oil and shit. Like uh, it was you, a diet. Do you eat seed oil? No, I don't really eat a lot of seed oil. I'm, I'm, no, I'm eating the best. I'm in the best shape of my entire life right now. But um, Because you stopped eating seed oil. <laughs> <laughs> no. I just, that was... Are you serious? Is that the one that really got you? That's amazing. I think I was just like, well, because the seed oil ends up leading. I think like a lot of that side of the internet turns into, I, no one stops at seed oil. That's what I'll say. You Say it again? You, you start at seed oil. You yeah. start at saying seed oil is evil. And I yeah. think where that often ends up is uh, we never landed on the moon. It just feels like it, that conspiracy. It just feels like that's where that tumbles to. Did we land on the moon? <laughs> see? You see? I saw that movie with O.J. Simpson, that documentary with O.J. Simpson. You see, Rick, this is the thing. See, folks, even geniuses, even geniuses, when they spend too much time alone. Um, yeah, the seed oil guy. It's wrestling. You have to remember, it's all pro wrestling. I mean, you know that I know that. I mean, you do know yeah, so that we I know never, that. You never know. You never well, know. some things you know. The Earth isn't. I mean, the Earth <laughs> no, is not flat. We don't know. We don't know that. We don't know anything. You, the Earth. Okay, Rick Rubin. You think the Earth is round or flat? I don't. I'd be curious to find out. I hope someday they figure that out. Is it? Is that your real answer? It's the one I'm giving. <laughs> oh. It's the one you get today. Maybe I'll feel differently tomorrow. I think you need to have a different conversation with Tyler quietly offline. And I think I'm going to text text the two of you in about two minutes when we're done. What are you? Rick's a flat earther. What are you? I'm shocked. I have to say, I'm shocked that it was the seed oil episode that got you. I'm shocked. It, it's, um, I think I've seen too, I've seen too many seed oil things. Turn out. So I, no, I'm, I'm not saying, but how about this? No, don't be shocked about that. I like basically made it through most of the seed. Your, your show is so compelling. I made it through most of the seed oil episode. <laughs> so that is what is um, amazing to me. You're laughing. It's, this is very satisfying to me. Very entertaining. That's so funny.
Um, I never would have guessed. Seriously, I never would have guessed that would have been the one that got you. Paul Heyman's the best. I love, I loved Paul Heyman. Anything about wrestling? No, no. I'm, I'm I loved Huberman on the podcast. I listen to, dude. I listen to all the episodes of the podcast. So does Amy. And I have to say, folks don't know it. Like his Rick's episode with Inaratu is one of my favorite episodes of any podcast ever. Uh, blew my mind. That guy understands everything that you. <laughs> that guy in his bones understands every word of your book, whether he's read your book or not. And he's amazing. It's so deep. Did you find that it just goes so deep? Amazing. Are you, um, do you want to write another one? Uh, I'm interested and we'll see where it goes. How often do you think about, so I was talking, when I was talking to Tyler, we talked about, and I've been thinking about this a lot, like, so much great art is about death, is about impermanence, but you know, music isn't always. And because music, a lot of the time is about affirming this. And um, yes, maybe you could say it's in the face of it. You know, Prince was talking about death a lot and, but, and Dylan, obviously, right? But a lot of music isn't. Um, how much do you, you know, you have young kids and all that stuff. I mean, how much do you think about Im Im impermanence? Uh, does it matter to you? Uh, well, I think about it. I I've come face to face with it a couple of times. So um, I had a heart surgery that was, you know, had a percentage of me not making it. I was in a fire that came very close to me not making it. Um, so I've had some near, near deathy type scares and I, I don't feel afraid. I, I just, want to live. I like to live and I feel like I have a lot more that I want to do. Well, yeah, you got to hike to the end of the flat earth. <laughs> right? I mean, you got to get all the way out there to the end of the flat it's earth far. to then it's look far. to then look on the other side and see what's there. This is great because now someone could tell me oh, that you uh, okay, I have a question for you. Uh was Oswald the lone gunman? Oh, it's a great one. I love that question. I've spent hours and I mean, it's countless hours. Yeah. The weirdest thing is I once went to see Norman Mailer speak near my house where I used to like at Shakespeare and Company on the West Side. And because he, he wrote this book because he went into it like obviously no one more than Norman Mailer would have thought the giant conspiracy. And he made this quiet thing in the bookstore. He wrote a book. He goes, I think. Yeah, I'm like, you, you know me, I'm the guy who wrote the huge CIA book. I think it's all a fucking whack job conspiracy. I don't believe any of it. I think this fucking guy had a really, <laughs> Mailer said it, I think this guy had a good day, like where it all came together and he was the kind of person who could occasionally do something remarkable. Yeah, he did do something remarkable and he like had one of those magical days. And it fucked me up because obviously I bet my life on the conspiracy, Rick, but seeing Mailer himself in front of me, a guy smarter than me, saying that, I'll go to the big I don't know file. What do you think? Uh, I'm more in the Oliver Stone's yeah, camp. Yeah, me too. I live there, of course. That's, but there's a, there's a long way from there to we never were on the moon and the, um, we're, living, we're, <laughs> we're living on a big vinyl album cover. Maybe that's why. You just want to believe that we're floating on a, a giant vinyl album why cover. would it matter why why would it change anything one of these like a double like one I, of those i mean why is it why is it important to you that it's one way or the other i'm curious it seems so insignificant we change nothing about our lives the nature of gravity in the universe 
would shift a little bit, I think. Would it? I don't know enough about I the wonder, no, I, know how I, they take it into consideration. I wonder. This is good. When I do yours soon, we can, we'll talk wrestling, of course, in the wrestling magazines. Because I was formed, as you know, I was formed by them like you were. And I have, I will say that my version of the flat earth, which I don't want to kill this now, but when we do yours, my version of the flat earth, man, is the layers of fabrication in, I met Haystacks Calhoun for lunch in a diner, because as you and I both know, maybe no diner, maybe no meeting, maybe no, like, like definitely the thing he said, Haystacks said he didn't say. So those layers, I was formed by that as, as as you were formed by that. If I'm a young person. Has anyone written anything about you that was not true? Of, co of course, yeah, man, of course. But what is that, okay. what, what? So go further, say more about that. I don't know, it just makes me think it's hard to know what you can believe, that's all. Oh yeah, of course, but then are there, okay, so are there no bedrock, question. Are there no, no bedrock scientific proofs, truths? No, there are none. <laughs> Well, there are none because they keep changing. Okay. When you were in the recording studio though, and you rolled off a little blue because it was at a certain frequency that they told you that that was, that was at this many megahertz or whatever. And so if you roll the blue off, you're rolling off some of that. Like, was that, n so was that true? Or you don't, you still don't know why turning the little blue knob at the top of the SSL did something. No idea why. You just know when you roll blue off, this thing happened to the sound. Yeah, it seemed so. I thought I thought I thought I heard it change. And why is it useful to you to why is it useful to keep all the balls in the air? Because obviously it is. Uh, this is funny and fun, but also it's useful to you. So why is it useful to you to not it's, have I, anything settled? Yeah, I, I think it's a, a really healthy way to go through life. You, you don't get attached to any. You're never surprised when something weird happens, which seems to happen every day, because yeah, of course, anything's possible. It could literally happen at any time. CM Punk could show up at the end of a WWE uh, pay-per-view on last Saturday night, and that was unexpected. It's like, if that could happen, why can't the earth be flat? If there's a third executioner, why can't, right? Because that's the third yeah. executioner is the first one of those that I saw in my life in wrestling, and yes, Okay, so that's unfortunately, I think the thing is that we were both called to the Torah, but before that we were both called to championship wrestling on Sunday, at Saturday nights at midnight. Yeah. And that might've been the thing that affected uh, us more deeply. Yeah, I, I just take it as everything that you see could be true and could be false, just like wrestling. Everything could be a work we don't know. How can we know? I think it's a great question to answer. You know what? I can't answer that question. How can we know? How can we know? Here's the thing, Rick Rubin, I'll say something I know. You are um, a fascinating person. You're a great artist. You have really, uh, listen, man, you know, you know, you've made some of my favorite albums of all time. You wrote this great book. You have really been solid to me in many ways and uh i appreciate it and i'm so glad that we got to have this conversation everybody should go find your book which i believe exists now it's possible rick didn't write a book you're listening to this podcast 
I'm telling you that there's a book called The Creative Act, The Way of Being. But I think Rick himself would say, don't take that on faith. It's true. If I woke up tomorrow and the book didn't exist, I can't tell you I'd be surprised. I would be surprised, but I like this notion. Folks, there's, there could be a book out there. There could not. There could be a podcast. There could not. Rick could have a beard or he could be the Frank Beard of this conversation. Everybody, uh, thanks. We'll see you next time. And this was awesome. Rick Rubin, everybody. <laughs> Thank you.